All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 18 of Wake Up Call. Uh, this is going to be a very fun episode. Milda and I are, of course, going to return to our usual rants, uh, but we've changed it up a little bit. We're going to make it a little more conversation-based um, and not just long speeches of our opinions. We're going to push back a little bit more. Uh, today, we've got the three-day work week and Twitter as a public utility as the topics that Milda and I have respectively selected. Because I'm such a nice guy, I let my good friend Milda take it away. Tell us why you think a three-day work week is the best thing and why we should move towards it. Yeah, thank you. So I've kind of already talked about productivity on the show before a couple of weeks ago, but I just think that it is so important to kind of talk about this again backed up by some actual research and some actual professors who have studied the the sphere of productivity to show why we should work less as humans. Because I don't know if it's just me, but maybe I'm just the one in this echo chamber, but all of my social media is about becoming the person who works, you know, from 5 a.m. to to 6 p.m., not only working their paid job, but also doing a lot of unpaid labor in the house and kind of self-improvement. And I think that can that can push a lot of people to be pressured to do things that they would not necessarily need to do or want to do and just detriment people's health in the end. So yeah, I feel like a lot of the times right now, people kind of wear this badge of honor if they work long hours and if they work a lot they like to talk about how the people you know the young generation nobody wants to work anymore and people are just lazy but i don't think that working a lot is a badge of honor whatsoever i think humans weren't made to work these long hours every single day ultimately that's not good for our health and right now this is a very big topic in politics as well. We look at France uh, as a good example. Right now, the president of France and the, the parliament, they have some plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64, meaning people would basically have to work longer until they can retire. And of course, a lot of people don't like the, this decision and want to roll it back. They think that you know people should have the opportunity to retire early if they want to. So basically, I'll just give a, a couple of statistics and uh, some research that has been done on this field to maybe kind of persuade you that we should be work, uh, moving towards not only a four-day work week, but also a three-day work week, as I'm advocating right now. So based on some research uh, from the United States, overworking leads to increased risk of cardiovascular disease and depression. And of course, this is probably not new to anyone. I'm sure that a lot of you have heard of this before. Um, maybe when we get caught up in the routine of our lives, we don't really care about this much because we just see everyone doing the same thing and we just think, oh, life is short. So whatever I do, it doesn't matter anyway. But it's actually deeper than that because if we work long hours, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will get more work done or that we will get that work done better. Sometimes it's kind of better to limit ourselves and to set a stop to our work to really have the most efficient result. 
So, for example, Adam Grant, he's a popular professor at the Wharton School of Business in the University of Pennsylvania. He studies productivity and he found that actually in six hours, workers are more productive than in eight hours due to them being not focused in the eight hour workday. I feel like there's a lot of examples, especially in offices, about how in the eight hour workday, people just kind of scroll on social media or spend a very long time on a relatively easy task to sort of expand their workday because they don't want to take up any more work that their boss would give them. Yeah, I was going to say, like, these are, like, really common things that I see, like, in these satire cartoons and stuff like that. It's just basically people just wasting away their their day, not really doing any productive work because, hey, they need to be there for the eight hours in order to get paid for eight hours. It's kind of It's kind of interesting how we value the time that a worker puts into your company rather than the value that they generate out of it. Um, I wonder if it's because like productivity is, is harder to measure or, or, or something like that. I mean, to me, that's like the only explanation to like how this makes sense. Yeah, I feel like with the with the economic system that we have, we tend to really commodify our work and our labor, I feel like a lot of people who have worked in like the service industry think of work hours as money. Like they think, okay, two hours of work is like a nice meal at a restaurant. That even happens sometimes. And, but that's weird because, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should sort of make our labor hours translate into money. We do so much unpaid work every single day we garden, we take out the trash, we clean our floor and our dishes. That's all labor, but we don't commodify it. So it's weird how important this kind of big uh, workday has become. And it definitely doesn't help. I mean, I, th I think the labor that we do for ourselves, like, is very hard to commodify just because, like, those are the things you need to do to maintain a basic degree of homeostasis in your life. Like, if you don't do your dishes, in a week you're going to hate yourself and your kitchen's going to be a mess and your life is just going to be worse. So it's hard to commodify stuff that you do for yourself versus stuff that you, that you do for others. I mean, that's where I sort of see this distinction. But then on the other hand, if you look at things like raising a child or, you know, taking care of a elderly parent or something like that. Those are things that you're not necessarily doing for yourself. You're doing for someone else, yet they, they don't generate as much value. I, I really want to see where you're going with this. Yeah, definitely. That's what I wanted to mention, like raising a child. A lot of the social work that women do, that's usually put on women, um, even in the Western world. You know, the mother is kind of the default person for the children. Uh, or if they have to take care of the elderly, also usually the mothers take up that job, which is unpaid, but it's definitely hard, as hard and as exhausting and as time consuming as paid labor. So I think we should really kind of restructure the way we think about our labor and how important and how valuable it is to society. So basically this Adam Grant professor that I mentioned, uh, he advocated for a 9 a.m. workday to a 3 a.m., uh, 3 p.m., I'm sorry. 
And basically, he said that it is even better if you wake up uh, kind of later in the day when the sun has already risen. There's a lot of research that says that it's better for our organisms and for our health if we wake up with the sunlight. That's kind of like the natural default thing that humans have done. Rather than, you know, waking up at 6 a.m. Uh, when it's dark, when you need to kind of do your whole morning routine and wake yourself up. But it's really not the perfect environment for your organism to be in that awakened state. So in conclusion, basically, uh, less time working does not decrease productivity and does not harm our economy uh, based on the research that Adam Grant and other professors have done. Um, and so I know that it's really hard to change anything, especially when you're working for someone else. Uh, you cannot just kind of exit your job earlier than your working hours. That wouldn't work. You would probably get fired. But I think that every single change in society, especially regarding economics and labor, comes from people coming together, striking, protesting, asking for different working conditions, and obviously also, of course, simply changing the discourse, changing the, the way we think about work. Um, I mean, if my echo chamber was about relaxing more and resting more, I think I would definitely have a, another perspective on work rather than having that 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, workday. I can also mention some other research. Uh, so the Melbourne Institute of Economic and Social Research found that people are most productive working three days per week, uh, with, cognitive, with cognitive performance declining after 25 hours of work per week due to stress and fatigue. So this is a, a much more radical approach, but of course, I think this depends person to person and um, the different kinds of labor that you do. But maybe in the future, especially with automatization, we would slowly move towards this kind of model of work. Okay, before you continue, I have a, I have a question. And that is like, what would people do um, with the rest of their time? You know, I don't know about you, but during like the COVID lockdowns I was finally had some free time I didn't really need to go to school I didn't really need to work I basically like had all the time in the world to do whatever I wanted that entire time as long as it was you know not like uh social or or whatever but I could do whatever I wanted and I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna record an album I'm gonna clean up my basement I'm gonna do all this stuff I'm, this is a very relatable experience like a lot of people I've talked to have had the same thing but in reality, when faced with that much time to do basically nothing, having no commitments whatsoever, you know, I spent a couple of weeks hanging out with my family and then eventually I was, I, I was sick of them and I had no idea what to do with my hours. And then by the end, I was craving some schoolwork, <laughs> craving studying for exams and, and things like that. I feel like people that are working are going to have some sort of similar experience. Or, you know, if they don't have a similar experience, there needs to be some way for them to make use of their time so that they feel like they're making good use of their time. A lot of people work for that sense of purpose on top of just making money. I just I just wonder what a three-day work week would do to a lot of people's drives and motivations and free time. Yeah, that's totally a fair question. And I think 
with the way that our minds are programmed to think about work, it is very hard to push yourself to do some tasks because we have no incentive, really. There's no incentive for financial rewards or other incentives. So we tend to become lazy as humans. But I think it would need to be a big sh cultural shift for us to kind of realize that certain activities and certain work is just beneficial to us as human beings. And I mean, I definitely know what I would do if I would work less. I think that's basically what I'm doing right now. I'm on vacation right now, so I'm not doing much, but I'm still reading books. I'm still doing some research for my TED talk. I'm still going to meet my friends and family. My stress levels have probably never been this low. Like I feel so relaxed. And of course this would get boring um, later, but I think what's particularly missing in the normal person's life right now is the ability to have some agency over how much you work. Unless you're rich, unless you're like a, I don't know, software engineer and you can work online wherever, whenever, it is quite hard to have that agency. And especially if you're a mother or you need to take care of someone else, do a lot of unpaid labor, work is usually a lot, just, you know, too much. So I think what's missing is that agency to make your own decisions about where and when and how much you work. Yeah, there's an interesting concept that I that I'd, I'd heard of actually first in former Prime Minister of Canada Stephen Harper's book. When he was talking about globalization, he said, uh, I don't believe it was him that in invented this terminology, but regardless of where I first heard of it, it's that there's there's the somewheres and then there's the anywheres. And I think that's what you're alluding to. It's like the anywheres they have flexible work hours. As long as they get their tasks done, they're all right. These are the people that are in software, that are in finance, that are, you know, doing all sorts of these these white collar jobs. But then it's the somewheres that really like are the ones that are facing the brunt of all these labor issues. They're the ones that face the brunt of COVID. And now they're the ones that are facing the brunt of burnout and lack of productivity. And I think that's something to keep in mind is that there's not just workers, there's multiple classes of workers and they're all experiencing very different uh, realities. This is a really fascinating approach. And I'm, I'm really happy that you gathered all this research and presented it to our audience. I think it'll offer something really valuable. Yeah, definitely no problem. And if I just can, I'll tell you one more reason to work less. Of uh, course, you can always tell us one more reason <laughs> to work less. I think that's exactly what everyone wants to hear. <laughs> Another one that you might have not thought about that's maybe not so obvious from the first glance is energy consumption. They've done a lot of research on how we consume less uh, electricity and fuel when we're working less. So for example, in 2008, when Utah implemented a four-day work week, they reduced carbon emissions by 4,535 metric tons, greenhouse gas emissions by a uh, by 8,000 tons and oil consumption by more than 600,000 gallons. So obviously we can see some of these effects even after COVID when people are working more at home or when they're given the opportunity to do so. But I think that especially with the climate crisis, this might become the reality of more people when we start to cut our consumption. Wow, look at that. Work less and save the planet while you're at it. Yeah, for sure. So 
those are my reasons and now I give the mic to you. Yeah, well, I think that I'm gonna head in a completely different direction. I'm talking about the saga that's happening over at Twitter that I'm sure we're all vaguely aware of, but none of us completely understand what's happening, and that's perfectly okay. So I'm sure many of you have been paying attention to the fact that Elon Musk has recently bought Twitter um, because he believed that, you know, the censorship had gone way too far and things like that. Of course, Elon Musk is the world-famous billionaire. Uh, I believe he's currently the richest person in the world. And basically the, the prototypical, the archetypical libertarian tech bro in terms of everything um, about his political views, everything about his vibe, everything about the way he treats his workers and things like that. And he's turned what used to be like a platform that only people on Twitter actually talked about into like this massive like culture war issue that's like gripping liberal democracies. So my argument about Twitter is this. I'm not a fan of Mr. Musk's tenure as the CEO of Twitter. But one thing that he's done that a lot of people don't realize is released what he calls the Twitter files, which are basically records of the times that Twitter has censored content that their moderation board has disagreed with. And my argument here is this. Corporate censorship of free speech is as much of a threat to free speech as state censorship is. Whether it's Elon Musk or Vijaya Gade or the previous Twitter regime, whatever. Given that fact, and with Twitter being a natural monopoly for internet political discussion, I believe that Twitter ought to be subject to the same regulations as all public places are in Western liberal democracies. You can go out into a town square in any modern uh, Western liberal country and you can say within limits whatever you want. And I think that Twitter ought to be the same sort of thing. Number one, just because it is super important right now to free discourse. And number two, I think that having a centralized hub for all this sort of political discussion is a good thing. And look, this is not a particularly original idea of mine. This is a theory that I'm going to be arguing for, for called the social media as a public utility theory. Sorry, Milda, you had something to say? Yeah, no problem. I just wanted to kind of ask you to expand a bit more about the possible regulations uh, for free speech that could be implemented still, because you said that still some of them are necessary. Because I think what's different sort of between, you know, going into a town square and saying your ideas and being on Twitter is that it's so much easier to involve people all around the world on Twitter. Like even with the last guest that we had, we talked about radicalization and how ISIS yeah. recruits their members on Twitter and other platforms. So how do you think those regulations can sort of tackle the, the, the vast majority of issues? I mean, yeah, it's obvious that Twitter is like far bigger and has a massive bigger meg can give people a bigger megaphone than any town square in the world could possibly give. Um, and the regulations around that are, are quite tricky. And I'm not going to pretend that my opinions on this are, are, are not nuanced. I think that there's there's a couple things that I personally would look for in terms of regulation. Um, keeping in mind that I, I might overlook some things and I reserve the right to change my opinion as more information comes. This is a very 
I'm, I'm really arguing for this more as a theoretical framework rather than a specific policy, but I'll go ahead and I'll take a stab at some specifics that I think we should do. Number one, I think one acceptable regulation above the town, like the whatever, we'll call it town square regulations. One acceptable regulation would be verifying that all Twitter accounts are in fact real people. Um, bots just make things a messy place and free speech, frankly, is not meant for bots. It's meant for people. So as long as we verify that Twitter accounts, even if they're completely anonymous, you don't need to reveal your name or anything like that, there's some sort of verification process to ensure that you are a person and this is this is your account. Um, in terms of hate speech, generally, I, I get a little bit iffy when I hear about regulating hate speech. Not because I don't believe that hate speech is, is bad, I just think it's very difficult to define in the gray area cases. And I think that leaving those gray area cases up to a judiciary or any body that has its own biases is a far worse counterfactual than leaving those gray area cases up to society at large. Um, I think that society is fairly decent at self-regulating hate speech. Of course, the most extreme forms, such as like direct calls to violence, join my terrorist group, um, kill these people, etc. like that. Of course, you can't say that in a town square anywhere um, in, in most liberal democracies, and I don't think you should be allowed to say that on Twitter too. Um, so to continue my, my, my argument here, I don't think I need to spend too much time to an audience as open-minded as ours as to why free speech is important. Milda and I have spoken about it very much. It's one of those areas where we both share some very core beliefs that we don't believe that opinions, dissenting opinions from the state should be censored. Um, and we think that, um, you know, both the left and right should be given their, their fair shake uh, in terms of these things. But on Twitter, this, this hasn't been the case, and it currently is not the case um, under Elon Musk. So under the pre previous regime, we saw a lot of conservative um, commentators, if you will, that were complaining about their views being censored by Twitter. And with the release of the Twitter files, despite everyone at the time saying that it was a complete conspiracy theory, this isn't true, what the release of the Twitter files showed is that it was in fact true. A lot of dissenting conservative voices on things like COVID lockdowns, things like, you know, a lot of their other culture war issues around like LGBT rights and, and you know, information about Hunter Biden and things like that, they had been censored. And, you know, it wasn't overt cases of hate speech that have been censored. It's the Hunter Biden laptop story that was leaked by the New York Post. That Those are serious stories that were legitimate run by a publication, and Twitter decided to ban it for what reason exactly? Nobody knows. So, of course, conservatives were upset by that, and now the release of the Twitter files shows the internal company processes, and of course it was mishandled and subject to the whims and the judgments of a bunch of elite within that company. Under the current regime, it's not like Elon Musk is doing much better. He's, you know, blocking journalists that that don't like him and disagree with him, people that call him meme names. He's blocked his private jet tracker and things like that under the guise of, of safety and civility. But in reality, it's this it's this billionaire tech bro's whims. And when his feelings get offended, he blocks whoever. I'd be hard pressed to argue that this regime is any better than the previous. 
And I'd be hard pressed to argue that any corporate unregulated Twitter is going to be all right in protecting the free speech of people at all. Free speech and corporate incentives and egos and content moderation simply cannot coexist. I wanted to ask you something. Uh, I have a couple of questions. I think what you said earlier is that you basically advocate for this approach that basically sees social media as a public utility. And then yeah. I wanted to ask you, what do you think, you know, where do we draw the line between something being a private company such as Twitter and it also being a public utility? Yeah, so uh, generally economists view like public utilities as things that are natural monopolies. If you look at like hydro, that's a natural monopoly. It doesn't make sense to have a bunch of people competing to set up parallel electric grids. That doesn't make sense. We monopolize that and we regulate it he heavily. Another example would be um, something like, oh, let me think of this, railways. Right in the US, um, railways, passenger rail is run by a company called Amtrak. They're a private company, yet they are heavily regulated by the feds because it's something that is considered a natural monopoly. And it's something that is so critical to the public that it cannot be like basically a victim of unfettered uh, corporations. It, it, it's basically like, look, our society deserves a right to free speech. We deserve a platform on which we can all come together and interact and talk about politics. That is far too important for our democracy, for our society, for it to simply be at the whims of a bunch of biased people. It is our role as the government to protect these people's right to free speech on the internet. And that's why we're interfering and making it a public utility. Twitter still gets to you know, run its ads and all that stuff, but it also just needs to come under much heavier government regulation. And with that government regulation, of course, there will be some amount of um, government involvement for people that are you know, worried about state censorship and things like that. But for me, the way that I foresee the role of the government in Twitter going forward isn't to like be a fact checker or to be like, you know, in, in charge of anything like that. It's basically ensuring that they don't, that they uphold the standards of free speech. The government is basically there to audit Twitter and make sure that Twitter is complying with the rules rather than the government enforcing the rules themselves, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, it is, it, is, it is a tricky thing. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, you talked about how Musk is kind of, uh, you know, making these regulations to protect his, his, himself and his own family. And I didn't read up too much on it. I just think it's kind of contradictory where he says that, you know, we should let all opinions flow and whatever happens, happens. But then when his interests are at stake, uh, he kind of uh, molds the regulations to to help himself. And of course, I don't know. If Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, I don't know. If and I don't think we should. <laughs> I don't know if it's true if his family is uh, if his family was actually in danger or not, but still i think uh, it's kind of contradictory yeah all that stuff about his family being in danger is hogwash you know there's there's trackers for a bunch of of people's private jets this is publicly available information that you can go to flight trackers online and do it it's not only available it's not some guy that's stalking him necessarily on twitter this is very publicly available information and where his private jet is 
has nothing to do with like where exactly in the world he is you know you heard about that like attack on his car or something like that i'm number one not convinced that that's real and i'm number two 100 percent sure that had nothing to do with the private jet uh tracker or anything like that i look i i really think that Musk is doing with power the same thing that we would all do if we had power. Maybe not me, because I'm awesome, but everyone else. Um, essentially, what they're doing is, what Musk is doing, is ensuring that his interests are protected. And with him being in charge of Twitter, you can only assume that the interests of Twitter are only the in interests of Twitter insofar as they're aligned with his incentives. And of course, Musk's incentives and our incentives are not the same thing. Our future, our vision of what Twitter should look like and Musk's vision are radically different. And I think our our vision would be radically different from anyone that's in charge of Twitter. I just think it's far too important to have it to be the subject of anyone's whims. And I think there ought to be some sort of constitution or charter that is audited by the government to ensure that Twitter is a good space. I just wanna say one last thing and, and, and where I think um, the centralization of speech is actually a good thing. So we saw in the, under the previous regime of Twitter when they were censoring things about COVID, censoring lockdown um, information, they were censoring doctors who said that mandatory vaccines aren't good, you know, sharing various opinions like that. We saw how there was a fragment of people that shifted off of Twitter. This is this happened like right after Trump got um, booted off the platform. They went to things like Parler, Truth Social, and Rumble, and, and that's where they got their information. They left. When Musk took Twitter, many of the radical leftists did basically the same thing. They were like, I'm done with Twitter. This is ridiculous. I don't want Elon Musk in charge of it. I'm going to Mastodon. And now they've got their own groups on Mastodon. They're talking about little leftist things on Mastodon. They're talking about radical right-wing things on Truth Social and Parler. And the problem is these people all used to at least be talking to each other and arguing with each other on one centralized platform. But now that that platform is unpredictable, censoring random things that you might say, people are like, nah, I'm out. I only want to talk with like-minded people and I'm going to a space where like-minded people are. And that is, has potentially catastrophic consequences for our society. Twitter is already basically losing its monopoly status, which would be awful because even though Twitter is not very respectful, Twitter is often toxic, it's not great. The one thing it does is that it gets everyone on every side of the spectrum talking to each other in one centralized place rather than in their own echo chambers. And I think um, to end echo chambers and to preserve this sort of centralized marketplace of ideas, the only way forward is putting some sort of regulation on who Twitter can censor. And they can't do that at a whim of someone that's in charge. That's that's basically my take here. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. You use Twitter a lot more than me, obviously, uh, but... I know, I'm kind of a degenerate <laughs> in that way. <laughs> it's interesting how, you know, who's going to take up the new job of the CEO if there's anyone who's going to do that? And how will it operate because I think it lost some workers and a lot of profit as well. Yeah, and I think what a lot of like um, quote unquote libertarians uh, fail to understand about about my argument here is that you know they're like oh like Twitter is a private company they should do it they should be able to do whatever they want uh, 
and you know it should not be treated as a town square and i don't want the government interfering in my town square but let's step back a bit let's go back to the 1800s when we didn't have twitter we didn't have the internet we didn't have anything like that who created the town square where people can talk and who enforced the rules about you're not allowed to shut people down you're you have to let everyone speak you can't be violent etc it was the state that's what the state's role is the state's role is to provide institutions that improve the lives and liberties of its citizens. And I think that Twitter in the 21st century is only a natural extension of that town square the state provided to its citizens to discuss the hot topics of the day. That's totally fair. Um, thank you so much for your rant. It was definitely interesting. And uh, I think it's about time to wrap this episode up. Oh yeah. So that's episode 18, everyone. I hope you enjoyed yourselves as we had a little bit of banter back and forth about the three-day work week and Elon Musk. Um, you know where to follow us on social media, right? Milda, do you want to tell them? Yeah, so we have Instagram, we have TikTok. We're much more popular on TikTok, so I definitely recommend checking us out there. Um, you know the handle. I think it's Wake Up Call Podcast, but with those little lines at the bottom underscores underscores i don't know english well <laughs> sorry but yeah see you all next week thanks for watching